Welcome to the Fresh Lens Podcast, where we read books and discuss ideas that change the way we see the world. I'm Trish Vino. And I'm Hirad Motamid. And we are your hosts. Hey, Trish. Hey, Hirad. Welcome, listeners. We're back. We are back. It's been a while. What have we been reading? We have been reading The World for Sale by... Javier Blas. Thank you. Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. So this book is a little bit of a departure from the science, biology, political theory theory that we started. And so maybe do you want to take us through? So this book was your pick and what we were kind of thinking about. Regrettably. (laughs) Spoiler alert. We didn't love this book. But yeah, why don't you take us through why we chose this book for this week? Yeah. So it was around September or August and I was catching up with an old friend of mine, an old colleague from the company that I had before, who left the software industry to get into mining. And if I had a candidate for who I would nominate for the most interesting man in the world, it would be this guy, because he's traveled the world at this point, met with ministers of mining from African countries, and just done all sorts of cool things with regards to like doing due diligence on mines, figuring out, and kind of like just, he has a bit of a pulse on the the industry. And I hope we can get him on the podcast. But just talking to him, I, I became very interested in understanding more where does our stuff come from? And I think over the ensuing six months, this idea has been more top of mind for everybody because now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all of a sudden you see, hey, like our fertilizers for agriculture are all being produced in Russia. Why? Or our fuel is coming, significant amounts of our global energy is coming from Russia and now we're not using that and the prices are going sky high. So maybe we switch to electric vehicles. Oh, but, but wait, the nickel for EV batteries also comes significantly from Russia. So when I talked to this friend of mine back in uh, September or August, he kind of painted this picture of where we were at in the kind of the state of the global commodities market, where we are very much dependent on a few key regions, mostly not controlled by our side of the world. So actually, like you and I read in a different book that we covered in the book club, rare earth metals are really important for all of our technological products that we build. Mm -hmm. And something like 95% of the supply is controlled by China. And a significant amount of the demand is also controlled by China. So um, I I think this stuff is really important. And I wanted to get a good handle on it. And the book that I thought would help us do that was The World for Sale, which was supposed to kind of shine a light on the commodities trade industry. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason I was on board with this, too, is do you remember during COVID in 2020 when the gas prices went crazy, but not in the normal way they went crazy? They like plummeted because... Basically, there was too much gas yeah. and people weren't buying it anymore and they literally were running out of places to store it. So that the, was kind the, of interesting. The price went negative back then. It was <laughs> negative $50 a barrel. So I, I only imagine that means that somebody would give you a barrel. If you're willing to take it, someone would give you a barrel and 50 bucks to take it. <laughs> so that just seemed crazy because it never like, you, you just don't really think about a lot of this stuff in life. It's like you just pull up to the gas station, you fill your tank and it's all just supposed to magically arrive when I want it. 
and you know that's the end of the story so i thought that that was kind of an interesting thing that made me pause and think about what was happening with commodity trading and how much of commodity trading has absolutely nothing to do with like taking possession of said commodities right yeah so what did we learn from this book (sighs) well i mean i would actually say almost nothing Basically, the story that I got from it was that commodity traders got fabulously wealthy from like basically gambling, huge speculative deals that often circumvented sanctions, that often kind of involved shell corporations and like involved insider sort of not insider trading, but like insider knowledge that most people wouldn't have access to. I think that to me... All the assumptions I had about this industry were just confirmed. Yeah. I mean, these these are... So, basically, I'll I'll give a little bit of a synopsis of a book that I wish we had read. What I wanted to read about was, like, what are some of the key commodities out there? Like, oil and gas are the most obvious ones, right? Then there are... There's things like copper, which is the best metal we use for lots of our electronics and our wiring in our homes. And... We are actually running out of mines for copper. There, are, there isn't enough supply coming out. So what's going to happen with that? I wanted to go through some key commodities, understand what they're used for, understand who's making them and who's controlling the supply, both in the sense of who's, who, who actually controls the mines, but also who controls the process of turning them from extracted minerals into finished products, right? right. That's kind of what I hope to learn. And yeah, instead, and what the supply chain looks like. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so in, instead, what the book was, was actually a history of the players in the commodity trading industry. And it was much less about what the actual significance of the commodities themselves are. And it was actually much more of a history. In the, so a lot of it didn't really deal with the current world or the world as it is today. Like it started off from post-World War II, kind of talking about how this industry has developed. Mm-hmm. So the guys who founded these companies, kind of the histories of the companies, how they grew, how they kind of performed their business. It was so there was a lot of that. But I agree that it didn't really ever get into maybe I just didn't know enough about the commodities industry that it was assumed that I would understand the things that you had just listed that we were hoping to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So with the stuff that we did read, what stood out to you as a. notable in the book i think i went in thinking that commodity trading was very greed driven and i don't like it's kind of a cliche thing to say greed but you know like just driven by profit nothing else that seemed to be confirmed that a lot of the business they did was very sketchy in terms of shell corporations and stuff to evade sanctions a lot of stuff in like war zones and regimes with probably very bad track records on things like the environment and human rights so to me it just sort of painted the picture that I had already assumed existed, which was these guys kind of don't care. They're wheeling and dealing. They're making trades. They're getting fabulously wealthy. It's probably not contributing a lot to the world in a positive sense. I, well, I don't know. I think I disagree with that. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm getting a little immoralizing it a little bit too much. Well, actually, I think you're you're taking on the message of the book. So this book, it, it's it's one of the issues that I had with it was exactly the tone that it took, and it was a very moralizing tone. So 
I mean, you're right. They, these guys do operate in a bit of a gray zone, and the book doesn't miss any opportunity to it's, point that out. It's not a gray zone. It's pretty black and white, and they're like, you know, like in the they're, black. yeah, they're in the, they're in the black. <laughs> like I wouldn't say it's like. Mer- I mean, at best, you could say it's gray. I think that the thing, like best case scenario, maybe no, like, it's great. Like I, just, you read some of these chapters, and it's like, oh, they went to this country, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and in order to be able to use the mines there or like do do their business there, they had to bribe some officials. Of course, they bribed officials. <laughs> How do you think anything gets done in the third world? Like this is, <laughs> like I, I'm originally from the Middle East, and yeah. like where I come from. You just, it's a common thing that like, if you, you want things to get moving in your life, you bribe people. That's just how it works. Right. And I mean, so that would be perhaps where it's gray at best. But I think a lot of it also was talking about like buying oil from Iran and countries that like US had firm sanctions on through set, setting up like a bunch of shell corporations based in other countries. So that is like, they are like purposely circumventing a law to make money. And like whether the law should exist in the first place, like that's a different discussion. It's it's a sanction, right? Like you're not supposed to do business with these countries. Yeah, that's that's a very American centric view of the world. It's basically this thing. It's like yes, America says you should not buy oil from these countries, but I don't know. I don't know if I buy it as like a universal moral system that doing so is a bit of, is an issue. Right. So you can take issue with that, but like the law is the law, and I think we just kind of agree that like these are the rules we're all going to play by, and they're basically just like flouting all, the rules. But, but this is the thing. This is the thing. At the, in the international scene, what America wants only depends on America's ability to enforce. And America has a lot of ability to enforce, but clearly these guys found a way of not getting enforcement. I mean, like, we, you, you and I can sit and talk about the morality of a particular action in, like, some kind of a universalist framework. I, mean, I love how we're, like... Already. <laughs> already yeah, getting into the philosophy of this thing instead of what the book was about. But, but no, this is actually one of the things that irked me about the book, because... They do mix what American law and what is moral. Like, they they do mix these two things up, and I don't think they're the same thing. All right, we're going to put a pin in that, and I'm going to give you my best example of why I think these guys are shady. Sure. So, at one point, I think it was 2005. So, 2005, the company Trafigura sees the opportunity to buy a large volume of gasoline from Mexico for basically super cheap. It's a bargain. The problem is that it's coker gasoline, which contains a large number of sulfur and other impurities, so it needs further refining. I don't know a lot about gasoline or whatever, but this is the thing. It's it's not very good gas. So Trafigura <coughs> buys all the gas. It doesn't necessarily want to send it to a refinery because that's expensive and then they wouldn't make as much money. But there is another cheaper way that they can kind of get out the unwanted elements called caustic washing. But that's a super dirty process and it's basically banned in most of the West because you end up with all these toxic waste. So no ports will allow them to dock and do the caustic washing process because then the port's going to be ended up with all this toxic sludge that's very difficult to dispose of due to the environmental regulations that we have in the West and Europe. So what solution do the traders come up with? They're like, fine, we don't need a port to do the caustic washing. We're going to like just do it out at sea on a tanker and then we're kind of free from all oversight and regulations. We could do what they want. 
But that process is messy and highly caustic. So they decide that the best way to do this is to buy a tanker that's already going to be scrapped. So it's already trashed. So they can just do this process and then get rid of the tanker. Fine. The other added benefit of a tanker that's destined for the scrap heap is they're like, oh, well, we don't need any insurance on it because if it sinks, whatever. Anyways, so they get this junk tanker. They do the caustic washing. But now they kind of, so they've got their gas that they can sell, make a profit on, but they're still left with basically a slop tank full of the horrible byproducts of this refining process. And still no one wants to touch it. They like start shopping around, but to get rid of this in a European port or something would be to the tune of $700,000. But they find some entity in Cote d'Ivoire that said that they would take it off their hands for a mere 20 grand. So they're like, great. Supposedly, they kind of like checked that they had the right permits to do this and stuff. But I think that like just the discount alone should have probably made them ask some more questions. So this company takes it all off their hands and, of course, just brings it to a dump, an open air dump outside the capital and dumps it all there. And as a result, 95,000 people in the surrounding area got sick. And they ended up having to do like a huge settlement and spend hundreds of million dollars to clean it up. But that to me is basically says it all. It's like they just wanted to make money. They went around a lot of like regulations that exist for probably good reason. And so they skirt it. They go to a country and deal with a company that doesn't have any scruples and a bunch of like isn't people end up getting sick. No, I, I, I agree that this is a bad thing. But throughout the book, there are numerous things that are not nearly as as problematic and are just painted as this like, you know, it, it's very much seeing things through this lens of 2020 American view of the world. And it's just, I, I just find it unbearable just reading it. And, and they're like, they're trying to add, insert these moralizing comments throughout. I mean, look, I like, like th- I- ultimately, you could write this book about any business, like, because this is actually the nature of business. This is why, for example, Apple has a huge pile of money sitting in Ireland because they're trying to avoid American taxes. Like, when where businesses can, they do, no. right? Okay. I'm like, But I think that we can draw judgments, right? Like we can say that tax evasion is not as bad as dumping chemical sludge and poisoning people, right? Like we can. Yeah, but but the the, my problem is that with this sense of shock that these guys did this, like no, this is like no no, businesses do this. And the the thing that's unique about the commodity trading business is that because of its very international nature, it does have this ability to not really be tied down to a particular jurisdiction, which makes enforcement of some of the rules that may exist in one jurisdiction kind of difficult because then they just, they're such an international operation, they just move elsewhere. I think that that was a thing. I was hoping that this was going to bring more kind of color to an industry instead i feel like all it did was confirm all my assumptions about the industry and now i'm armed with specific examples of crappy stuff that they did and 
There's, and like and the, the players weren't even that interesting. Like I think that he thought that he was Michael Lewis and was going to write a book like The Big Short about these interesting guys that run the industry. But either he's not a good enough writer like Michael Lewis <laughs> that it kind of fell short or that these guys are just not as interesting. I, I have a very hard time thinking that these guys are not as interesting. I think that every description in the book was so two-dimensional. Even in, even if you wanted to kind of turn it into this dramatic... You know, there, there was a lot of drama. Like, at some point, there's this company called Mark Rich, where because of a lot of these rule breakings, the founder of the company, named Mark Rich, was, was a bit of a a legal burden on the company and then some some of the other partners wanted to kick him out and then the company that's the company that has now become Glencore which is one of the largest publicly traded commodity traders out there and the book gets into the drama between these various parties a little bit but again it's I, I think partly because the industry is a little bit secretive maybe they're not as as easy to investigate or maybe they're not they're a bit more tight-lipped than some other industries but yeah the the portrayals were really two-dimensional and not captivating at all in fact quite boring and i think that you are too generous about that i actually do think these guys <laughs> are that two-dimensional <laughs> And like for an example, I don't think anybody's that two dimensional. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people are that two dimensional. Like for example, like I don't know if you watched that documentary Free Solo. Alex Honnold climbs the no, thing. I haven't watched it. I know. Of okay, it. yeah, yeah. So like I was listening to an interview with the woman who was one of the directors, Chai. That's our Helly. Sorry, I'm probably saying that totally wrong. But the idea when she was gonna do this documentary about Alex Honnold doing this feat which she's like it, if he was just a daredevil who kind of didn't have much regard for life or didn't think that he would ever make a mistake that wouldn't be an interesting story because there are plenty of people who are daredevils out there but it's not interesting right like what made it interesting was that he had a very strong sense of his own mortality and understood the risks of what he was doing and spent a long of time thinking about it but still chose to do this thing that was you know, dangerous and exciting in this big feat. And I kind of feel like it's like the same way. It's it's kind of the same sort of thing. You know, you don't think in the entire tr- commodity trading business, they could have found one person that that was a little bit more two dimensional well, the than thing. what they portrayed. Maybe them as. he could have. But I'm just not sure that they are right. Like, I'm not sure that they're like Michael. Was it Michael Burry from the big short? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think these guys like I, I'll so like this friend of mine who's in the business, he's probably nowhere near the top of the industry as some of the guys that were portrayed in in this book. I mean, I don't know, maybe he is, but like he has so many interesting stories of like uh, landing in places in Africa and then getting stranded there. And you know, this like the reason why I would nominate him as the most interesting man in the world is pr- pr- precisely because he's traveling around the world and having these crazy experiences. Yeah. I find it really hard to believe that the people that started this industry would have less interesting stories or or the story told about them is less interesting than that. Perhaps. Yeah. But like, that's the thing. It's like other... That doesn't make you an interesting character, though. Yeah. Like having yeah, a few interesting experiences, right? This is why other people's vacation photos aren't very compelling. But I, I just... I find <laughs> it hard to believe that like the, the people that are willing to put themselves in that situation... To get not. fabulously wealthy... You have a hard time believing that people take risks to become super rich. Not that they're, <laughs> no, but, but not everyone takes that risk. And there's a very small portion of the population that's willing to do something like this. 
Anyway, yeah. anyway, we don't need we to move uh, on. W- yeah, we can we can move on from that. But yeah, I think overall, I was just not impressed with this book. And I think the other <laughs> problem was is like if he had have revealed sort of more interesting ways that they were perhaps circumventing normal market behavior, I would have found it interesting. But I just I guess I felt like like since we had like the Panama Papers come out and stuff, it's like we knew the Shell Corporation business was bad i just i didn't feel like there was really anything new in it yeah which was also kind of one of my criticisms but yep yeah so we didn't like it very much but perhaps if you're really interested in commodities and the jerks who are running these companies (laughs) you might find it interesting well, it has really high ratings on on Amazon. I'm actually kind of curious what do what do people on Amazon say about this? I know Goodreads it does pretty well too. Okay, I'm going to read one of the five star reviews from Amazon that 19 people have found helpful. If you hesitate to read this because it looks like a recounting of obscure financial maneuvers, be assured that it isn't. You don't need to know or care much about business or finance to follow these intriguing stories. The writing itself is a joy to read as the authors demonstrate their mastery of the subject by their ability to clarify it. And they bring to life personalities who built and dominated this global underworld. But it's at its most valuable in showing how the traders lay behind some major global headlines. So along with pretty much everybody else, it delighted five star from this reader. I think this guy was reading a different book. I don't even understand that. There's not a single intriguing story here. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so I just, I didn't feel like it obviously came nowhere close to changing our life. I would say it didn't even seem to have any new ideas in it. No. It didn't change the way I saw anything. Yeah. So definitely as far as like fresh lens worthiness, it failed. Drain pour. Yeah. (laughs) In our beer analogy, it's a drain pour. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's not the worst book I've ever read. And, you know, if, if, you're interested in, if you're interested in commodities, I guess it's not, it's not a bad idea to know a little bit about the history of the companies involved. Like, probably, given uh, the situation in the world today, you probably want to know a little bit about what are the companies that are going to be really critical in kind of reshaping the commodity market going forward. Because I think the historical perspective is useful in this sense. This whole history of commodity trading starts in the post-World War II era, partly because a lot of the infrastructure to have globalization was in place and the demand was there, right? Because all the Western world had to kind of rebuild from, from the war. And Interestingly, actually, back then, there was a lot of valuable commodities in the Mm -hmm. Soviet Union, but then you had the West and the East that were not really talking to each other. But these commodity traders would kind of be the go-betweens, right? And then for something like 70 years, the world order was pretty fixed. And for the most part, things were kind of predictable about who could deal with who, with some, you know, incremental changes along the way. But then... What's happening right now is we're probably going to head into a phase of deglobalization, where with what's happening with Russia, we kind of and, and what happened with COVID, we kind of realized that this trend of being super efficient with everything, so you do anything in the place that it is the cheapest to get it done, you get a lot of efficiency, but you don't get a lot of resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are thinking about how to be more resilient 
in the face of current events. And probably commodity traders are going to be important players in that. So it'll be kind of, it's good to know who these companies are and where they came from just to be able to navigate the future a little bit. So that's kind of my best steel manning of this book. Right. Yeah. And it did talk about how the industry's changing. Like at the very end of the book, they talked about how commodity traders probably won't play the same role that they have in the past just because a lot of it was based on access to information. So they would maybe have like a guy on the ground at these mines to know what was happening in order to time their trades. So it was kind of based on a network of insider knowledge that now with like the internet and the ease of communication, really it erodes their, not their benefit. What's the word I'm looking for? Profit margins. Yeah, it erodes their profit margins or like their ability to kind of like make these like very lucrative deals. Erodes their their edge. edge. Yeah, Yeah, erodes their edge. Exactly. Thanks. So it's kind of like maybe a look at what was a weird time when people could really like go gangbusters and get super rich off everything being just right and having access to huge amounts of capital and networks all over the world. And But yeah, it, it seems like it's a little bit of a dying industry, or at least the model that once was. Yeah. Yeah. Well... <laughs> there you go listeners when when the beer rating is poured down the drain the episode is quite short <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a better book for next time talk to you soon talk to you soon <laughs> listeners that's a wrap thank you for listening we always appreciate your support please subscribe or follow us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts if you use twitter follow us there at freshlands pod Finally, we always love to hear your feedback. Our email address is hello at freshlenspodcast.com. <laughs>